Something that really surprised me as a foster parent is how complex foster parenting is. That's why I'm really thankful that I'm licensed by an incredible agency that goes above and beyond to make sure their foster families are supported. Most foster parents close their home within two years and many quit within their first year. So having extra support is really helpful. I don't think my partner and I would have made it past the two-year mark without our agency's support. Kids Crossing retains more than 80% of their foster families, and I'm really not surprised by this. Kids Crossing has provided us with many free services, including therapy for the kid in our care, parenting coaching, interesting online trainings, in-home family preservation services, and a home coordinator who acts as a buffer between us and the foster care system, and so much more. What's really great is that all of these services are offered in-house by Kids Crossing. So our child's team is all aware of our current challenges and successes, and they all use the same trauma-informed therapeutic model, which means we're all speaking the same language. It's a huge time saver to not have to find all of those services on my own, and it gives me more time to play with the kid in my care. So what are you waiting for? Kids Crossing welcomes diverse and non-traditional families. They have four locations across Colorado, in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com. I felt like if we had more well-intentioned, kind-hearted people paying attention to this, more caring foster parents, more volunteers, if we had more wealth to share of energy and time, then the kids would benefit from that. And so I want this to be something everybody thinks about every day. And I'm like, to an annoying degree, I'm like, I'll go to a movie with someone and be like, you know, that plot line reminded me of what happens in the foster care system. But I can't not think about everything connected to that. And I want everybody to pay attention to this because if we had all the brains on this and all the hearts on this system and this issue and these children, then I think it would be a whole lot better. Welcome to Just a Special, the place to learn more about foster care from diverse perspectives. I'm Natasha, a foster mom, and today's episode is all about community why it's so important, especially in the foster care world, and how you can get more of it in your life. I'm really excited to bring you today's guest because I've known her personally for several years myself, and we've also done some collaboration on foster care advocacy together. So I've really been able to see her process up close, and she's someone I really admire. We're going to be talking to Hope Forty. She's the founder of The Neighbor Program, formerly known as Families Together. And what I really admire about her approach to foster care is that it's so intentional. She's so creative in finding solutions to issues or problems. And she's not one to settle. She's going to keep fighting until she sees progress. Just a few months after the birth of her first child, a son, she told her husband that she felt like they needed to become foster parents. And he was like, whoa, we have an infant. Let's slow down a bit. So first they became CASAs, which are volunteer court appointed special advocates. And if you're interested in learning more about that, we have a whole podcast episode on that called Real Life Fairy Godmother. And then a year after becoming CASAs, they became a foster family. We started off talking about what Hope felt was missing when she became a foster parent. You just don't know how you as a person are going to respond to things until you're in the middle of it. 
I don't think there's any way around that than to jump in with the best preparation you can and the best buffers you can and go for it. I would put the the main naivete and ignorance on just being a human being and not knowing what you don't know. In addition to that, we actually, in the not smartest decision of our life, moved 60 miles away right before we took our first children in, before our first placement. And so our community was in one town and our actual life was then weeks before the girls came to live with us, uh, was uprooted just because of um, what my husband was working on with his company. And I think we were surprised how much of a shock that was to our systems. And I feel like that 22, 23-year-old energy (laughs) is like, oh, sure, we can handle anything, no problem. And then you get there and you're like, wow, this is harder than I thought. So I think not having our community around. um, And then the other story I always tell is um, I thought that because people talked about the foster care system, that it would be a series of like cause and effect. Think of like a gear wheel where everything fits together and it's like a, a clock with inner workings where once one thing gets activated, the next thing gets activated. Like that's how I think of a system. But I feel like the word system um, is a misnomer there. And and there it didn't feel like there was much of a system of this happens, then this happens. When, and the story I always tell people is we welcomed the girls into our home and we were really excited and high on life for a few weeks. And then things got a little more challenging um, as they got more comfortable. And the county caseworker, I believe, um, came in for a home visit one day and said, so have you set the girls up for therapy yet? And I just thought, I didn't know. I think this was after probably four weeks or five weeks. And I just thought, I didn't know that was my job. I'm supposed to sign them up for therapy. Like, I don't know anything about therapy. I generally know from training that it's something that's helpful. But I, I, I would also argue that's actually not a foster parent's job and especially a brand new one who doesn't know the system and, and where appropriate therapists would be for these various ages and needs. But I think the biggest thing external from myself that was missing was uh, an actual system of things that work together and kick off the the needed resources. I feel the same that it's not really a system in terms of like things working together and so many things fall through the cracks. And there's so many times when as a foster parent, I did feel ill-equipped, like you mentioned, you know, trying to find a therapist. And then you also mentioned how community was so important to you in being a foster parent or, or being away from it. You felt the absence of that. Can you talk more about that? We actually ended up moving back to where we had come from 60 miles away. Um, after six months um, and after those girls did not live with us anymore. But we have a really active community. When we were in the newer city that um, we moved to right before we received the girls, we happened to find a rental in a really affluent part of town that was close to a park and it was walking distance for a lot of fun things for the kids. So that was important to us. But at the same time, being in that part of town, we were the only household on our street, probably in the whole neighborhood that had kids running around in diapers on the front grass because I was just trying to get everyone outside and get some sunshine and keep everyone alive. And um, toddlers don't always like to wear clothes. And I just felt like I can't, I can't even pretend to fit in here. Um, Everyone else had everything all put together. And um, 
you know, we could barely get our trash out to the curb on the right day because we were just trying to um, make it and keep three small people alive um, and keep them healthy and and meet their needs, really, um, which were very different, all, all three very different needs from each other. So I, I remember feeling that isolation, which is not normal for me because I, I can usually just jump into a community and um, be part of it and make friends. We, we continued fostering once we moved back to our more familiar part of the state. And when that happened and we felt like, okay, we can receive another child if there's a need. And we know our communities here that it really changed everything to where um, we knew we had people who could come and help with things. And, and they were wanting to and asking to come help with things if we needed it. Um, and I felt like everybody needs a community like this. And I also felt like I had way more help than I could even use as one foster mom. And so I was like, how do I redistribute some of this social capital to foster families or kinship families or bio families who could use even one friend that they don't currently have? And I think that's so important because as a foster parent, I feel like right away your buffer kind of shrinks because... With the system, there's so many last minute things, last minute meetings, appointments, or situations, you know, that you need to be present for, for the children in your care. And then I think what I didn't think about before becoming a foster parent that I've mentioned a few times on the podcast is life keeps happening <laughs> after you're a foster parent. It's not like life smooths out and it's just like foster care is sometimes it's not even the main stressor in your life, which is, you know, it's a huge stressor. So that's saying a lot. So I love that you had this idea of, you know, how can I expand this? And you actually started an organization called Families Together. Can you talk about that? Yes. When I started it seven years ago, it was called Foster Together. Then we changed our name to Families Together. And now um, for our seventh birthday, we have officially renamed it to the Neighbor Program um, for a lot of good reasons. But um, I started that because I did exactly what I just said in the last answer was, I was like, how do I get these people who are eager to help and want to support, but they don't know somebody, they don't have a next door neighbor who's fostering to drop off dinner to, or to take a walk with, or offer a listening ear. And so they want to help. And then I know that there's hundreds of foster parents in my town who would love to be supported and who would love a friend, somebody who's not paid to show up there at the house and, and do an official casework visit. We want someone who is there with a listening ear and no judgment and just has the capacity to serve and support um, what you're doing as a caregiver. And so um, our main program is the neighbor program. And we match one volunteer with one family. It could be a foster family or a kinship family. And we do also serve um, biological families, um, depending on where we are in our program. And we match them with one person to, at the very minimum, bring a meal once a month for six months. We want to make it simple. It can be a takeout meal. It can be homemade. It can be um, a special birthday meal for the caregiver or one of the children. As the volunteer gets to know the family, we let them customize that. What What is the most helpful? Is it breakfast burritos dropped off on the porch because the mornings are the busiest time? Is it... Um, one lasagna for tonight and one for the freezer for another night. Um, and so we ask them 
to customize it and make it as natural as possible. We just say we're the matchmaker between the family who wants support and the volunteer who has support to give. And we've matched in the last seven years, um, 350 different families, all types of families. Um, Sometimes they're not even with an open child welfare case. They're just a family who's got some mental health work to do with their children and they want that extra support because it's very isolating sometimes. We've worked with various agencies and nonprofits to make this available to families who say, I do want someone in my life um, to just be a friend and be a listening ear. And that is the main requirement when we have an agency say, can you help us do this for our families? Um, The main requirement is, yeah, your families are going to have to opt into it because we can't have this be something that is forced upon anyone. Um, It's not something that um, works if it's not truly desired by the family that's getting the support. Um, So we're really just trying to build friendships. And uh, I'm really, really grateful to say that 83% of the families we've matched with a volunteer will stay in touch after the formal six months of the program is over because um, it is that they become, they kind of fall in love with each other and want to keep in each other's lives even beyond a program. And to me, that's the best. I don't want this to be about a program perpetuating itself. I want it to be about families using connections that are going to benefit kids for years to come. I love how you're giving people a roadmap to get involved and then letting it grow organically from there. As a foster parent, I really can't understate the importance of a meal and a listening ear. And I know that sometimes after a long week, um, I'm very lucky that we have family in the area. And so sometimes we'll go to my sister-in-law's house for dinner and she's used to us bringing kids over a lot of respite care. So there's a lot of kids in and out of the house. And so it's not awkward at all because, you know, she knows what questions to ask and what would make a kid uncomfortable. And they're just so welcoming, which is great. Yeah. It's almost like you're not the only foster family. You're like the hub of that, of that foster family situation, but you've got an extended family that takes their role seriously too. Exactly. And it's so beautiful. And just to be able to kick my feet up and know like, hey, dinner's not on me. I don't have to worry about it. Um, Also, there's someone else that the kids can interact with for a period of time. Take some of that pressure off me as well. And just being able to be honest and being like, you know, it was a really rough week and not feel judged. Because I think too, as a foster parent, you can sometimes feel like other people in the system, sometimes they're great and you feel like you're all on the same team. And sometimes you feel like you're fighting for the child's best interest and other people aren't listening or they're not necessarily on your team. And that's really how the system is set up, right? It's all for the the child and not necessarily for the foster parent. So just that feeling of here's someone else that's on my team. They're rooting for me. They're not going to be questioning my intentions. They're not going to be judging when I've had a hard day or a hard week or you know, something about this child is really triggering something deep within me and I just need a break or to vent about it. That's so beautiful. And I feel like that can fuel people much further along than they would be if they were doing it alone. Yeah, exactly what you said, to not feel like you have to hold back and be perfect. You can be known and be flawed and be a human who is strong in some areas and weak in some areas. And depending on the day, (laughs) you might be on top of the world or not. And we all need that. 
one of the taglines I saw on your social media. It's like, we know we can't fix everything, but we can fix dinner. Like, let me just handle this for you for a minute so that you can breathe. And I think every single person who's in charge of children on this planet, parent or not, needs somebody like that. And it's really been so beautiful that even people in other states have replicated the model. And I want it to go far and wide. I have some, they're friends now. There's a teacher and a, a foster mom, adoptive mom team in Chicago area that started this because the teacher wanted to start it because she saw a lot of her kids in her classroom were in foster care and wanted to support the children having healthy homes until they can go home or otherwise. And then the foster mom was like me and wanted to to give an opportunity for other people who weren't involved to be more involved and have a name and a face. This is not an invisible crisis. These are real children that need stability until their next steps are settled. People have taken it and run with it around the country. And I see other places doing similar types of things for teachers. Our healthcare workers, like especially during COVID and hopefully continuing after the work that that takes, and it's often lonely and thankless and emotionally taxing. Like if you don't have a ready-made community, I, I hope that someone can do something like this for you. And really the idea came from, I feel like I had such a non, I shouldn't even say non-traumatizing. I, I had such a like filling, loving, every, especially like emotional and human need provided. And part of that was being part of a community that when somebody had a baby or somebody was sick, people would bring meals for however long was needed. Um, and I was surprised when I got out into adulthood to find that not everybody had that. And so it's part of creating that, um, in new ways, especially a lot of people who might in a former generation might have been part of a church community or a religious community of some sort. Right now, that's not happening as much. Statistically, the largest growing population in the West um, is those who identify with no religion at all. And so knowing that, we're going to have to put some different kinds of social structures in to help support people who are just because the culture is shifting are no longer part of a faith community. It is so necessary. And after becoming a biological parent and bringing a baby home, I think there was an awakening for me too, because I think part of me was like, how can people abuse children? I just don't understand it. You know, like it must be that they were abused and it must be maybe they have some mental health or some other barriers. But after having a baby and an infant who was a pretty difficult baby, I was like, if I didn't have my community, I don't know what I would do. Like sometimes you're just so tired and so exhausted and you feel like you've given everything. You've dug down deep 10 times and you there's nowhere else to dig. Exactly. And especially after, you know, birthing, your body's still healing and all of that. And I think it just... I am so much more thankful for my community than I was because I know it gives me that buffer so that I can show up for my daughter in healthy ways and I can break, you know, generational cycles of trauma that I bring as a parent. And we aren't meant to parent alone. We aren't meant to raise children alone. So this is so, so important. Yeah. I mean, I talked about how people aren't identifying with faith any longer as as often. Um, but also 
because of communication and travel, families aren't staying close geographically as much as they would have in former generations. And so that itself is another thing that this is a response to. So we're sort of creating new social circles to to catch some of that. And studies show one of the main indicators of how long you'll live is how strong your social circle is. And I feel like you're mentioning in American culture, especially we've kind of gotten further and further away from that, especially in recent times when we have such a polarized society and we can forget that it's it's really necessary. So what's a success story that fuels you to keep going? Oh, there's so many that I love. We have a family in our program um, who received and welcomed three or four children. And at least one of them had a pretty severe nonverbal diagnosis of autism. And they said, is there any way you could find us a neighbor, a volunteer through your program who could help us navigate some of this? Because we are on every wait list. We're calling everywhere. We're, we're, we've never been experienced with autism before and we want to, um, we want to do exactly what this child needs for as long as they need us. When they were on all those wait lists for therapy and everything, I was able to find a local volunteer who actually only lives about eight blocks away from them, who is a special ed teacher and um, has served many, many children with autism over the years, knows the resources in town, knows the resources online and nationally, um, so that she can help not only bring them dinner, but also be a support uh, emotionally for them and uh, help fast track some of the services. And so she's become invested. And at the same time, um, both of the parents have had some surprise significant health issues this year that threw them for a loop. And so um, she was able to not only provide the monthly meal, but also help get some extra support around the hospital stays. I was just texting with her, checking in about how it's going And she said they've just been through so much and they love the kids so wholeheartedly. It kind of brings her to tears because of how um, they are just being put through the ringer and at the same time, such a steady presence for the kids for as long as they need to be there. So honestly, my favorite thing is when I call it like the magic of the match, because when I have someone who wants to support a family and they don't know that this is also a real story, that there is a family uh, two blocks away from them who has a very similar family makeup to them, who has dealt with some of the same health needs in the past. And I can connect them and say, you're already neighbors. I just needed to introduce you. Like, go have fun, get to know each other and support. And it becomes a mutual support over time because that's how friendship is. This is not just one person giving to another forever. It, it, most of these matches I see evolve into real friendships and they go beyond what a program could ever offer. And I want these relationships to outlast any kind of nonprofit work. It's not one size fits all. It's so unique. And you're taking the time to create these matches and be thoughtful about it so that there is that longevity. Because I feel like so much about the foster care system or child welfare system is it has to be sort of one size fits all, right? There's a policy enacted and it's applied across the board. And each child and each family is so unique. And a lot of times 
these policies or these regulations or whatever it is, or even just the resources and how they're allocated don't always make sense. Common sense is seemingly missing the things that seem like a no-brainer to somebody who's got kids in their home who need something right now. It's, it's just surprisingly, you have to fight surprisingly hard to get it. When I say common sense, I mean the things that we would accept for our children, which I think foster parents who are doing this for the right reasons, they do try to come at it with that level of care that I'm going to demand or figure out or find the level of support that I would accept if this was my biological child. One of the most intimidating parts of foster parenting for me was when my home was investigated for child abuse by the Department of Human Services. When I was in foster parent training, they told us that if you foster long enough, it's not a matter of if you will be investigated, it's a matter of when. So how did my partner and I get through it? Honestly, it was a huge relief to have our agency support during that time. Kids Crossing is a private foster care agency in Colorado, and they had our home coordinator explain the process to us, and she was available to be present during our interviews. Kids Crossing even followed up on our case with child welfare so they could keep us updated. It was a huge relief to feel like we weren't going through the process alone. But to be completely honest, it can feel pretty discouraging to be investigated for false allegations after all the support you've provided as a foster parent. So it was also really encouraging to have our home coordinator repeatedly check in with us and normalize the experience for us. And knowing our agency could help us legally if needed was a huge stress reliever. Kids Crossing even sent us a thank you card to help us celebrate our home being opened up again. Kids Crossing welcomes diverse and non-traditional families. They have four locations across Colorado and Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more about how you can become a foster parent at kidscrossing.com. What are some of the things that you've learned about yourself along this journey? Well, I've learned that I like to take a problem and break it down and try to find a simple solution. Um, It doesn't mean it's an easy solution, but it could be simpler than how we're trying to do it now. I've learned that I need to rest. I've learned that I'm never going to find a balance between working and feeling like I've done enough on behalf of families and kids in this system. I think it's going to be my life work and I'm going to die with a lot of it unfinished, but I do hope that we get to see progress toward a more humane foster care system that treats kids the way that they deserve as human beings. But I think, I'm honestly, this year, that has been my main lesson and the thing I'm trying to integrate and, and truly understand is that I can't just stay on sort of a treadmill of trying and trying forever without stopping to see, okay, that worked or that didn't work. But we have to sort of keep the energy going because I do want to do this for the rest of my life. But that means I can't um, run myself into the ground every single day. I have to be okay with leaving certain things unfinished at the end of the day and then picking them up. And then the next thing is unfinished at the next day and pick that up again. And I have a personality that wants to see everything complete and finished and tidy. I'm learning how to become okay with that. I think that's great advice for any foster parent out there or anyone 
who's interested in getting involved in the system is having that intentionality and really looking to see what are the impacts of your actions and not just assuming that they're always going to have a positive outcome and being able to be honest with yourself and shift and change so that you can look at, okay, how's the best way for me to show up for these kids or this kid? And then also what you touched on too is that rest, I think is so, so important because so many people, foster care professionals or foster parents get really burned out within just a few years. You almost feel like you've been eaten up and chewed out, spit out. And what stinks about that is in order to rest, you have to accept that you can't do everything and you can't save everyone. Because if you could, then maybe a nap is not worth it. Like maybe then a vacation is not worth it. But if you realize that if you take a vacation, there will still be work to do regardless of if you take the time off or not. And I I just think of it as like, I got to be doing this for the next 50 years. So I better stay alive for it (laughs) and not stress myself to death, even though it's hard because you know that kids are suffering. Um, and you don't want to become apathetic to that. I don't think it becomes that. I think what it is, is we know more because of, of information and, and sharing and the internet. We know more problems. We have got compassion, fatigue, and overwhelm of how, even just if you just look at the caseload of a, a county caseworker, is it possible for a human being to care deeply about that many children um, and, and make solutions for that many children when we are one human being, we're not a machine. We're not a system. It would be wise for the foster care system to figure out a way. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying anything revolutionary here, but to figure out a way to have a human amount of work for the caseworkers so that they can care and invest in the children like they want to. One of our other episodes, um, How Do I Escape This? We interview a kid who grew up in the system and then she became a caseworker and she actually ended up having a lot more compassion for the caseworkers that she had growing up because she realized how it's just basically impossible to get all the work done. You're fighting fires all day, every day. And like you touched on, how can we expect wonderful results when someone is just barely surviving in that position? And that brings it full circle to like why I started the neighbor program in the beginning, because I felt like if we had more um, well-intentioned, kind-hearted people paying attention to this, which I think most people in social work start out there for the right reasons. And I think they start out there because they're well-intentioned and kind-hearted. If we had more of them, more caring foster parents, more volunteers, more people who start as a neighbor and then are like, oh my gosh, this is my life calling. I've seen this one child and now I know this is what I want to do. And they go on to become a guardian ad litem or they go on to become a judge or a caseworker or a foster parent themselves, which we've seen from our program. That's so exciting. If we had more wealth to share of energy and time, then the kids would benefit from that. And so I want this to be something everybody thinks about every day. And I'm like, to an annoying degree, I'm like, I'll go to a movie with someone and be like, you know, that plot line reminded me of what happens in the foster care system. But I can't not think about everything connected to that. 
I, I know everybody who has a sort of a social issue that they care about feels this way. And I want everybody to pay attention to this because if we had all the brains on this and all the hearts on this system and this issue and these children, then I think it would be a whole lot better. And not to mention the the systemic barriers that are put uh, in in front of getting good results because there are a lot of people fighting so hard. Um, but it does feel like there are special interests and larger powers that sometimes are what's quelling common sense. And so I don't know what to do about that other than vote and be involved and and know how these issues um, come come out locally um, and federally. But it's pretty overwhelming <laughs> when you think about all of those things. Um, so I guess I just always like to take it back to one or two children that I know and love. And that's the reason. That's a great perspective because it can so easily get so overwhelming. And I feel like the deeper you get into it and the more experience you have, the more overwhelming it can become because you're like, oh, there's this kid and they need this and there's that kid and they need that. And so just dialing it back. And then also with your solution to part of this with the neighbors together is, you know, we can't fix everything, but we can fix dinner and the ripple effects that that has. Yeah, I want it to be people realizing this is the one or two things I can do and then take the next step and take the next step. So how has starting the Neighbors Program changed you? Wow, that's a good question. It feels from the outside when you're looking at someone who started a program or has um, done something good in the world that you admire, like looking at somebody else doing that feels so much more of a high than looking at myself doing it. I'm like, I basically see all the stuff that I've left undone. I see all the stuff that I would love to change or do someday. It feels a whole lot like cleaning my house every day. Like I clean my, well, I don't clean my house every day. Let's be clear. But it feels like how I feel when I look at my house that needs to be cleaned every day. And I'm like, oh, here's all the stuff that's undone. And it's easy to look at like the dirty dishes versus like my kids happily playing and having a great childhood. And like, that's the point. The point is that it's a place where people live and people are here. And so I, I think if I compare the nonprofit work to my house, I'm thinking, why do I expect that? everything's going to be neat and tidy every day. People are here. This is for serving people. But from the outside, you have to admit, like, you respect a nonprofit that looks like they've got their stuff together. And and we do in the important ways. And when you're in it, it feels so overwhelming and so messy. And it makes me so much more grateful for all the people around the world who are jumping in on maternal mortality or health in childhood or the hunger issues or clean water or environment. I think it's changed me in that I'm just like in awe of anybody who tries to do anything to support um, the healing of the world because it is really hard. I think I'm just trying to be more gracious with myself that like we cannot have everything be perfect all the time. We're just going to keep supporting families and serving families and stay on mission with that. And it's, it's never going to feel like everything's done. I love the analogy for a business of 
I always use this analogy of um, it's like an iceberg and there's the tip on top that people can see, like the public. And it you know, looks pretty good. And then below the water is much, much more ice than you see on the top. And that's what the founder or the people really in leadership and organization always see. And it's so much more, right? And it's probably a little more chaotic and bumpy and ridgy and all of that than what's seen at the top. And I think that's also a great analogy for foster parenting. Like if you're doing it right, people see a kid who hopefully is making some sort of progress or um, is just having the opportunity to just be a kid and play. I mean, that can be a huge success is a kid just yeah. enjoying that. And that's why people are like, oh, you're a hero. You're a foster parent, which I know you and I both don't like that. But right. Exactly. That's why people say that because they can see the tip of the iceberg. Right. And, and then like, all. Yeah. All under the iceberg, I've, I think we have the same mentality. You and I are both like, but here's all the things that I would like for this kid that the kid's, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not getting or it's taking longer than mm-hmm. I'd like, you know, like a good mm-hmm. therapist, good support at school that actually yeah. fits what their needs are. And it can be easy as a foster parent or as a founder of an organization to feel like you're failing because mm-hmm. all of these things aren't checked, but are undone, right, undone. And you just have to sit, sit in it you know, and just be okay with, you know, this is maybe more messy than I'd like or not as organized. But I love that analogy of like, you know, you look around your house and if anyone has young kids and can keep a clean house, wow. No, (laughs) give me some tips. Yeah. Give me some tips. But that's just, just a good reframe, you know, is to be able to look at the kids and be like, you know what, you know, they're outside enjoying the sunshine or whatever it is. It's those little wins that really can be a big building block for them in the future. If somebody is interested in helping on a certain need that they see in the world, show up for an organization they they trust or they respect and volunteer or see how you can help fundraise or see how you can help with the day-to-day a little bit and and work out your hang-ups about how you think everything could be and should be and and maybe that leads somebody to start something fresh, or maybe it leads them to collaborate with what's already happening. And I guess that relates back to the supporting of a family too, because we can jump in and support a family even if we're not ready to do something ourselves. And I, I want our listeners to to really think about this as a call out because I think the foster care system could use much more creativity, much more ideas that haven't been explored. And I think people from other industries looking at the foster care system would be really helpful as well to see what has worked in your industry that could then be applied. Because I feel like the foster care industry is sometimes 10 or 20 plus years behind other industries. So I think there's so much room for creativity, like the program you've started, Hope, of ways that people can help. And it's nice to have these independent organizations that don't have to go through all the red tape of the larger or state-funded organizations. And I think local solutions can show us how to do things on a a bigger level too. And local solutions can be so beautifully grassroots. Actually, the Neighbor Program is a program of Project 127 now, which is a 20-year-old nonprofit in Denver. It started as a grassroots program to help families identify themselves as adoptive homes for children whose parents already had, had their parental rights terminated. And so Project 127 was started... 20 years ago to address that need. And now they've got several other programs for family preservation, for mental health, for supporting foster families. 
And they've just taken us as one of their programs. Again, because um, for any nonprofit people listening, I just wasn't able to run it as an independent nonprofit because by myself um, or with the tiny, tiny staff, we just, we didn't want to spend all our time filing paperwork and um, reporting for taxes. We wanted to support families. So it made a lot of sense to come under Project 127. Right. And you and I have talked a lot offline about collaboration and the importance of that and trying to get that rolling. Do you have any other advice for people looking to get involved with foster care or child welfare advocacy? I would say do your own inner work. Start going to therapy, whether you're going to be a foster parent or a CASA or start a nonprofit someday or collaborate with a nonprofit. We need leaders in families, so parents, and leaders in nonprofits and government who have done the work, or at least started the work, because that's also lifelong, to have true deep peace in their own self. I just went to a conference and one of the teachers said, what you don't transform, you will transmit. So if that's your childhood trauma or your anger or your scarcity mentality, if you don't untangle that in your own heart first, you're going to pass that along to other people. This work is not just about ticking boxes or getting people off wait lists. It is about human thriving and human flourishing. And every single human has a soul. And so if we are humans trying to help other humans, we better have a healthy soul to start out. So I would recommend just fearlessly attacking that in therapy, in spiritual direction or meditation or the books you read. I'm so glad you mentioned that because foster parenting really will press on all your bruises that you have in a very kind of harsh way. Probably besides the foster care training, I would say that's the single most important thing that helped me be prepared for this work. Actually, I would argue therapy was probably even more important. And I even started going through therapy when I went through foster care training because it was bringing up a lot of stuff from my own childhood. Having the time and space to work through that before welcoming a kid into my home and before becoming a biological parent was probably the biggest gift I could give any child. And stuff will still come up, right? It's not like you like ever solve things. I have a friend, Nicole Stewart, if you want to look her up, she's working on a book about trauma and caregiving, I believe. And she says, you need to learn how to care for someone without carrying the burden. And that is the work I feel like that I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life because you care so deeply about people and you cannot make decisions for them. You cannot fix their life. You cannot direct their life. You can only sort of be a healing presence for them and um, to hopefully transmit healing instead of transmitting all those other things that I talked about earlier. I always joke like that when they license a foster family or they license a new social worker, they should be like, here's your license, here's your training, and here's your number for a therapist. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I know that our friends like at Foster Source are very uh, dedicated to making sure that the caregivers, the kinship, and the foster caregivers have therapy. If we don't have healthy people leading the home, then we can't we can't help kids. And I don't know what you think of this, but it makes me think of my first placement and how much I learned through it, but also how much 
the kid was impacted by me learning in probably not positive ways. I guess my advice for other foster families would be the first placement you have, make it, um, I'm putting quotes, air quotes in the air, like an easier placement, maybe something that is not going to be on the upper end of challenging um, because I look back and I think I would do something so much differently than I did them at the time. Your first child, sort of your guinea pig. It would have been great, I think, for the kid who was in our home not to have had to be there while I was learning some things that I needed to learn. We were like so energetic, like we'll take any kid and anything. I learned a lot. I'm thankful for the experience, but you know, I think back on it sometimes and I think, well, I know it wasn't a completely positive experience for that child. So, well, I always say foster care is a learned skill. Foster parenting is a learned skill. Parenting is a learned skill. It would be so silly to expect somebody who's brand new to be as skilled at some at anything as somebody who's been doing it for 10 years. And also what you said about a first placement, if anyone's listening to this and they're thinking about it, which I know that's how I learned a lot when I was kind of discerning if this was going to be our path for our family. I would just binge on these podcasts. I would encourage that what you just said to have a realistic expectation of what kind of child you can, or what kind of behaviors you can take the first time, because you've got all the bureaucracy to learn. You've got all the checklists to learn. You've got all the visits and, and okay, how does therapy work? How does visits work? How does um, all this paperwork and the meetings at, at the CPS office? Um, so you can learn a lot of that with a child who may have le- lower level of needs. And that is not, um, a cop out. If that child truly needs to be in foster care, then you can be a safe place for that child. And it's not a cop out to say, I'd like to get some experience before I say I'm ready for, you know, this kind of diagnosis or this kind of behavior, because there's a lot system wise to learn beyond what you need to learn about every specific child. That's so true. And also I think it took me probably over a year to really understand what is my role as a foster parent, mm-hmm. because it is a very mm-hmm. weird in between. You're not fully Yeah, because you want to go in and be mama bear. Right. And you can't, and you have, Mm-mm. you have certain rights, but many rights you do not have. And so it's a very kind of weird position to be in. And you want to honor the biological family as much as you can, as much as um, is safe for the child. You want to encourage that, connection. One of the stories that keeps me going is not even from my program, but it's from becoming friends with my foster son's mother. He's seven now, but he was newborn when he was with us. And it's been seven years of learning how to be friends, going beyond that initial feeling of, which only lasted for a week or two until I got to know her. But that initial feeling of, oh my gosh, this bad lady whose child is in foster care. And the first day I met her, that melted away because I was like, I do not want to take this lady's baby. She is the same exact age as me. She loves him fiercely. She has been dealt a crappy hand in life. And she's worked so hard from that first time I met her till now to continue to be uh, a present and caring mom and learning at different levels appropriate to where she is, how to do that now. Okay, what does that mean for video games? What does that mean for school? How does she build a community that's healthier for her kids than what she had growing up? And so 
that keeps me going so much just to see. And again, this goes back to everything we talked about earlier, but like I was there to be a practical support, to offer tangible support when I could, to be a friend. She had to do her thing. It, there, I had no power other than just being encouraging and saying like, I'll be the light at the end of the tam- tunnel if you need it. I will watch the kids if you need it. Like she is the one who had to do that and I couldn't save the world for her and I shouldn't. And that's not how being a person works. Um, and I'm glad it's not how being a person works because it shows that everybody has their own um, autonomy. She keeps me going because um, she has shown what she can overcome with support from people who love her. She did that and her son can look back, hopefully, you know, as an adult and see how his mom really showed up for him and grew for him. And it's really hard work to break cycles of intergenerational trauma and abuse. And she did that for him. What a gift. And no one can take that away from her or him, which is really beautiful. So I highly suggest that anyone interested in getting involved in child welfare in any sort of way, sign up and become a neighbor with the neighbor program. How do people get involved? I would love to have any of your listeners come and join us. I also feel like this podcast is going to just attract exactly the kind of volunteer we're looking for. Somebody who's really open hearted and to volunteer people can go to project127.org. So that's the word project spelled out and then 127 um, in numbers.org slash neighbor program. And you'll see um, a button there in the middle that says volunteer. And that will take you to our site, which you can apply to your background check and do your training all in one fell swoop. It shouldn't take you longer than about two hours. And the background check is also online. Um, And then our matching manager, Kim, or myself would be in touch and we would help you find a family close to you who would love to have your support. So yeah, we would, we'd love to have any of your listeners, Natasha. I think it's really incredible that you continued this work after losing your husband. Cause I think a lot of people would have just been like, okay, I'm done. Yeah, totally. And I guess is right. Cause he was in this with you and how I see it or how I understand it is like, this is also a way for you to honor his memory. Right. Yeah. You know, I feel like we certainly had like struggles in our marriage. Like everybody does. We had um, things we had to work through in order to see each other really and love each other. But we had such like a happy time together. And especially like that early twenties energy of like, whoa, let's take on the world. Let's do everything. Let's foster. Let's have kids. Let's start a nonprofit. I mean, I started it, but he really like supported, like I wasn't making money for, uh, several years doing it. Um, and so he supported it. And when people ask me how I'm doing now, which it's four and a half years since he died, a lot of days I'm able to say, I feel pretty steady because I think what I'm doing now with the kids, with keeping in touch with our kids who we fostered, who've gone home or have graduated with just our family life and, and with the neighbor program, I feel like I'm doing what we would have been doing together anyway. Um, I really miss the, I was thinking about this this morning, just like the camaraderie and the like, Hey, like on a hard day, like you're still doing what you need to be doing, you know, like sort of that intimacy. I have great friends who tell me that and I can call them anytime, but like that intimacy of, you know, your spouse saying that to you, who knows you so deeply, um, 
I miss that a lot. And at the same time, I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. Like this is our thing. It's what we wanted to do. And, and honestly, he connected me with so many people from his business world that gave the initial funding to start this. And so many of those people have become dear friends and they are my partners in grief and they are my supporters too in beyond the funding of this program. Um, and the way they've stayed faithful to it has been really like a breath of fresh air for me too. So yeah. Um, and, and you know what, it's such a sorrow and such a loss and I never want to be like, um, my grief is compared to that of a child in foster care. I mean, I think that's such a fundamental loss to not have your stability as a child at the same time, like losing someone that close. There's something about like the shared suffering of that, that like, I know that life is just absolutely dark some days and that nothing can make it better sometimes. <sighs> so I I think that's what I was talking about with wanting people to do their inner work and and be ready for this. It's like it's like life is kind of like this fellowship of suffering sometimes. And I want to find people who aren't afraid of that. Another foster parent told me, um, the episode is like, can you just sit with me in this mess? It was so revolutionary for me. But she said, you know, don't be afraid to go to the uncomfortable, like name the uncomfortable. I think when I started out, I was like, oh, maybe if I, like, I don't want to remind kids of these things or whatever. But in my family, we had a very tragic death as well that really rocked our whole world. And I realized it's like, you're never going to remind people of these things. When people are dealing with such big griefs, you're never going to yeah. remind them. Like it's They're always already in there. their head. Yeah. It's always yeah. in their head. They're always thinking about it. Naming it. Naming it at is, that point is powerful. It is. It is. And it's saying like, Hey, like I'm not scared to go there with you. And as painful as it was to lose this family member, who was a kid, I think it did open me up in a way to be able to um, meet a child in the darkest of places. Um, I had a really rough three years of life where it was really hard. I almost died as well. And I can sit there with a child now. I'm not scared of it. When before, I didn't know how to show up for people who were really grieving. Um, I had no idea. But now I know it's sometimes like all you can do is sit with someone and be like, I know it sucks and it's not fair. And a child will be able to feel or a person can feel if you've been there before or if you're there currently or if it's just some sort of lip service. I think when I was going through these really dark years, there was such a strength that I felt a few friends in particular were really able to just sit there with me, not try to make it better and be like, I'm here with you. And it almost brings me to tears because it was just so powerful and transformational for me. And they actually showed me how to show up for other people. And before that, I just really had no idea. And that's what these kids need is they need someone to be able to just sit there and be like, this really sucks and it's not okay. Mm -hmm. You're bearing witness. You're bearing witness. You're you're there as a a person who sees it and holds it, and that's all in that moment. 
And to not try to reduce it or brush it under the rug, I think is just so important because I think sometimes that's what the system does, right? And it's just so normalized. Yeah, it's like, okay, this person has this trauma and this diagnosis. And so on our chart, they end up here. I don't think anyone intends to make it like that. But because we're trying to deal with so many people, we end up systemizing people. Um, And I think that's a place that an excellent foster home can fill a huge gap to say, you're a human being, honey. If anybody makes you feel like you are a number, don't believe it. One way you can help a kid in foster care not feel like a number is developing an organic relationship with them by becoming a volunteer through the Neighbor Program. I highly suggest doing so if you are interested in becoming a foster parent, as coming alongside a fostering family can really give you an eye-opener to the joys and the challenges that come alongside opening up your home. Or maybe you aren't ready or aren't able to become a foster parent, but you still want to support kids in care. You can learn more about the Neighbor Program at project127.org slash neighbor program. A huge thanks to Hope 40 for being a guest on our show and for her tireless work to advocate for kids and families. The world is certainly a better place because of her. That's a wrap. This episode pairs nicely with our episode number 12 called, Can You Just Sit With Me In This Mess? As always, we love hearing from you. Please give just a special a follow and review on Apple Podcasts as that few seconds really does a big help in helping us spread foster care awareness. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at Just a Special. This podcast is produced by Kelton Reed and New Media Dojo. Something that really surprised me as a foster parent is how complex foster parenting is. That's why I'm really thankful that I'm licensed by an incredible agency that goes above and beyond to make sure their foster families are supported. Most foster parents close their home within two years and many quit within their first year. So having extra support is really helpful. I don't think my partner and I would have made it past the two year mark without our agency's support. Kids Crossing retains more than 80% of their foster families and I'm really not surprised by this. Kids Crossing has provided us with many free services, including therapy for the kid in our care, parenting coaching, interesting online trainings, in-home family preservation services, and a home coordinator who acts as a buffer between us and the foster care system, and so much more. What's really great is that all of these services are offered in-house by Kids Crossing, so our child's team is all aware of our current challenges and successes, and they all use the same trauma-informed therapeutic model, which means we're all speaking the same language. It's a huge time saver to not have to find all of those services on my own, and it gives me more time to play with the kid in my care. So what are you waiting for? Kids Crossing welcomes diverse and non-traditional families. They have four locations across Colorado, in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com.